It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm pumped up. Big edition. Chance to look back at the summit that just took place. Also, a big thing's happening in uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, for with Tunnel to Towers. They're doing a great thing uh, at noon. They're going to announce uh, that they are having a ceremony for American servicemen members killed in the war on terror. Remember, 9-11 was terrible. And think about Afghanistan and Iraq chasing after al-Qaeda and ISIS. Uh, so many people have lost their lives or have changed immeasurably so that's tunnel to tower still helping out first responders as well so let's get to the big three now with the stories you need to know it's brian's big three number three it reads to me like they are agreeing to split what we all call infrastructure from what the squad calls infrastructure. So we're going to split the two bills. But if they require Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin and all the other moderate Democrats to vote for both bills, then what have Republicans gained? I mean, you still get the whole bill. Just in pieces. But if they do it through simple reconciliation, if Joe Manchin, of course, votes for it, moving. That's what seems to be happening on massive voting and infrastructure bills uh, as the most powerful Joe in Washington, Manchin, is starting to release his demands to fellow Democrats. Hold on tight. This could get scary. Number two. Today, we are announcing that Texas will build a border wall in our state to help secure our border. I told you that Texas would step up and respond today we begin that response. Taking it into their own hands, states citing common cause, securing the border and their safety and security, combining efforts to build a wall, sending their own National Guard to the border as calls for help in Arizona and Texas are answered by governors, not the vice president. Number one. I told President Putin my agenda is not against Russia. It's for the American people. Fighting COVID-19, rebuilding our economy, Reestablishing relationships around the world, our allies and friends, and protecting the American people. That's my responsibility as president. So there is the president in Geneva yesterday. What was said, what was promised, and what was accomplished. And why the rubber, why I'm rubber and your glue defense just worked for the Russians as the fawning American press gives old man Joe a complete pass despite a befuddling blow up at the end. With the press, by the way. He also asked the press, why are you so negative? Uh, I don't know. We have to ask questions to find out what's going to happen or what took place. Joining us now, a man who's positive, had a great medical career and said, I want to add a politician to my resume and is quite successful. Senator Bill Cassidy joins us now, Energy and Natural Resources. I want to talk what's happening in Washington, but Senator, from afar, how do you think the president did first at G7, then with NATO, and then with President Putin? You know, I think the president could have done better. On the other hand, my perspective is that Russia is a nation in decline. And whatever happens in this blip, they just kind of – their population is sick. They're, they're corrupt. They're mortgaging their assets. They're, the, the people at the top are stealing everything. And America is always a nation on the rise. So whatever this blip, Brian, you bet for the United States in 10 years and you bet against Russia in 10 years – 
and you're going to be making a lot of money on those bets. But he had the world stage, and he does have the, the number two nuclear force in the world. He has reasserted himself in the Middle East uh, through North Africa in Libya. And now you have him rattling the cages, uh, getting an ally in Belarus, rattling the cages of the Ukraine. So he's a factor in the short term, especially now that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. How frustrated was it, if it was, Senator Cassidy, to know that he, walking into that meeting, he already, the president did, trumped his State Department and greenlighted the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. He extended the missile agreement with Russia for five more years and then gave him this, as you said, uh, the, these props for appearing together with this much ballyhooed summit. I agree with that. By the way, he won't allow pipelines in the United States, but he allows Nord Stream pipeline. He's worried about carbon emissions when we in the United States have much better environmental standards than Russia. But he's just incentivized the, the Russians, giving them leverage over the European economy. There is a lot not to like yesterday or this past week. On the other hand, 10 years from now, we will continue to be a nation on the rise. Because people like my grandparents and maybe your grandparents or parents are going to be coming to this nation as a land of opportunity, and then they're going to contribute. And many of them will be coming from Russia. It is a nation on decline. And I have to take that long perspective. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to weave into infrastructure with a soft entrance by talking about uh, by bringing in Joe Biden's comments yesterday in Geneva, which I can't get my head around. You know we've been hacked with the Colonial Pipeline. You know we've been hacked uh, by the meat processing through the Midwest. And it really devastated to a degree in the short term our economy. So listen to what President Biden came to the table with, knowing the Russians were responsible. Cut one. Another area we spent a great deal of time on was cyber and cybersecurity. I talked about the proposition that certain critical infrastructure should be off limits to attack, period, by cyber or any other means. I gave them a list. If I'm not mistaken, I don't have it in front of me, 16 specific entities, 16 defined as critical infrastructure under U.S. policy, from the energy sector to our water systems. Excuse me. How about no cyber attacks or we're going to attack back in uh, 10 times uh, with 10 times the impact? What do you mean 16? Yeah, there's a lot there that shows a lot of naivete. <laughs> okay, please don't attack us. Even, you know, you know can you imagine, uh, uh, you know. Uh, can you break into my house and only take my couch? No, thanks. Yeah, don't break into my that. house. Again, there's a lot of naivete there. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, we have to, one, show that we can protect ourselves, which we've not yet shown that. But we've also got to show there is a price to pay. We've done it occasionally. You know, the North Koreans went after Sony. And so we went in there and just screwed up the North Korean um, uh, electrical grid for a while. We just took back money. The Colonial Pipeline had paid through Bitcoin, and we went in and grabbed it back. But it needs to be more of that. You mess with us. We're coming back at you harder. All right, uh, Senator, let's talk about infrastructure. The president wanted $2.4 trillion. He dropped it down to about $1.4 trillion, but includes things like school lunches and uh, preschool for everybody and elder care. It was human infrastructure. You guys said that's a no-go, but you started negotiating. What can you announce that the GOP and some Democrats have agreed on, including Joe Manchin? Yeah, so we've got uh, money for roads and bridges and highways. Uh, that, uh, you know, the American people like desperately need and want. You look at polls, but you also look at the, you know, the backed up traffic wherever you go across the nation. 
We also have money for environmental remediation, which I showed a slide to some of my Republican colleagues about how in Louisiana our coastline has been battered by uh, multiple things. And then look at the coastline of North Carolina, and then look at the flooding in the upper upper Missouri Valley, and then look at a map of wildfires. Yeah. Uh, we've got money in there that could decrease the risk, or else go and push back upon the forces that are causing those environmental issues. So we've added some things the president wanted, but frankly, those are things that you know Americans should want. So we've got roads and bridges. But we've also got some things that he wants, but those are things that I think Republicans want, too. So $580 billion in new spending over five years and 974 total as you repurpose other spending. The president, the president has not said he would not sign on to it, said he hasn't really looked heavily at it. Cut 35. I, I honestly haven't seen it. I don't know what the details are. I know that my chief of staff thinks there's some room that there may be a means by which to get this done. And I know that uh, Schumer and Nancy have moved forward on a reconciliation provision as well. So I'm still hoping we can put together uh, the two bookends here. So what do you have? Uh, He didn't nix it. He did nix Capito's, who's not happy, by the way, that you guys were negotiating this while she was negotiating with the president. But now you got $110 billion for bridges, $66 billion for rail. Uh, public transit, $48 billion. I could r- list it all there. So how many people are coming to the table saying they would vote for it on both sides of the aisle? A couple things. We've got 21 people who have signed on to our initial framework. By the way, framework. It can still kind of you know, go back and forth a little bit this way, a little bit that way. But there's others, at least on the Republican side, who are saying, uh, you know, why wouldn't I support this? We need the infrastructure. We're concerned about the energy provisions, and we're rededicating dollars that have already been allocated but are no longer needed for COVID relief. We're rededicating them to this pot of of issues. Like, why shouldn't I be for it? Now, we've got two people already against it, Bernie and Elizabeth. But if Bernie and Elizabeth are against it, it's kind of an endorsement. (laughs) Yeah, for you, but not for for President uh, Biden, who seems— much more interested in the wild left than I thought. I want you to hear what Seth Moulton said, because Joe Manchin is the one uh, everyone keeps looking at, because he's the one, if they try to do simple reconciliation, 51 votes, they need him to make that work. That's with or without you. And then also factor in, I want to get to H.R. 1, which is the revamp of our voting system, which is flat out unconstitutional, which Joe Manchin's not signing for either. But listen to what Congressman Seth Moulton said, a Democrat, NAOC, uh, this morning on MSNBC. I don't think this is a place where you compromise. And I think that um, Joe Manchin should know better that he's in a very powerful place right now in history. And he's excited about that. But I think he's really out of touch with the times and he's really out of touch with the American people and our fundamental values. There's no compromise when it comes to basic constitutional principles in a democracy. Congressman? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, there was a audio leaked yesterday on The Intercept about uh, the senator's conversations with big donors and saying, hey, you know, cut me a break on the commission. We should be negotiating with each other as colleagues, not with billionaires and donors, period. So he's basically talking about the election law, H.R. 1. Uh, Joe Manchin says, I'm not doing it. 
Uh, it would nationalize elections. It would automatically it would not it would not require people to show ID to vote, which 70 percent of the country want. Uh, it would automatically register to vote. Joe Man says, I can't do that. Plus, you can't nationalize elections. So he proposed no excuse absentee balloting, uh, public financing of elect. These are the no these are the no goes for mansion. No excuse absentee balloting. Public financing elections, he said no. He wants voter ID. And Manchin also proposes making Election Day a public holiday, mandating 15 consecutive days of early voting. So these are some of the things that he wants. He also wants to give, uh, continue to allow local legislators to allow the purging of voter rolls. When people move or die, they should be taken off. That evidently is controversial. Where do you stand on H.R. 1? Are you concerned? <laughs> you know, to talk about H.R. 1 is a little bit of a joke. Um, you're not going to take somebody off the voting rolls when they've moved? I'm from Louisiana. Hurricane Katrina took 25% of the voters in Orleans Parish, New Orleans, and they moved them to Atlanta or they moved them to Houston. Now, some of those folks registered to vote in Atlanta and Houston, but they were still registered to vote in New Orleans. Well, should we allow them to vote both places? Now, that's just an example, but, but it's just a dramatic example of that which happens all the time. And by the way, some of them were voting in both places. So our Secretary of State said, listen, you are, you've got an address in Atlanta. You've registered to vote. We're taking you off the rolls here in Louisiana. Like, why wouldn't you do that? And the fact that we can't, that tells you that the strategy is not to improve integrity. The strategy is to improve the chances of a Democrat winning public office. Election laws should be neutral. They shouldn't be clearly designed to benefit one group over the other. And then what's going to happen if this continues to be so personal and partisan, no matter who wins any election, big or small, no one will accept it. This could fracture the country. i got to bring you to back to where we started with infrastructure. The original soundbite we had is Trey Gowdy. Trey Gowdy was talking about what you know, breaking up infrastructure to what it should be, broadband, uh, bridges and tunnels, and everything that we just discussed, transit. And then he's going to put the health infrastructure on a separate bill and do it through pure reconciliation. Would you have any type of contingency uh, with the passing of the first bill that would see so that would allow you to stop what's coming around the corner? So first, um, you know, I can't control what Democrats do, uh, clearly. I'm not part of their caucus. I don't want to be part of their caucus. But think about that. One of my Democratic colleagues said, huh, I'm going to get my dessert first. I'm going to get my roads and bridges, and then you want me to take the spinach? You want me to take the higher taxes and the stuff you know, that, that, that has got nothing to do with infrastructure? I've already had my dessert. I'm not sure you can get me to pay. I'm not sure you can get me to, to, to then take my spinach. I think the reason that Bernie and Elizabeth are against this is that they want that trillion dollars for things that have nothing to do with infrastructure. They want to raise the taxes, and they know the only way they get it is if they couple it with roads and bridges. Uh, I think that, uh, one, I can't control what they do, but just thinking about human nature, uh, I don't see that scenario playing out the way you describe it. Senator, when, now that Joe Biden's back, well, you'll probably know probably by the end of this week if you wasted your time or not. I really hope you didn't. I think the country needs people to come together on some things, and this seems to be the perfect beginning. And you've worked hard on it uh, with some Democrats, and which is I haven't been able to say on this show in a long time, including Mark Kelly, Chris Coons. Uh, as well as uh, Hickenlooper is part of the mix. And he's been way to the left so early on in his uh, senatorial career. And then you have Joe Manchin, who everyone looks at. Senator, I hope, I hope your hard work pays off. Thanks for telling us what exactly is happening behind closed doors. Thanks, Brian. 
All right. Uh, when we come back, I'll take your calls, 1-866-408-7669. We'll talk about that, reflect back on the trip, and find out what's on your mind. Don't move. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on The Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The talks were very constructive. Personally, I was convinced that President Biden is an experienced person. And it's clear that we spoke face to face for almost two hours. What sort of a conversational partner Biden is? I'd say he's, he's very constructive, he's very balanced, just the way that I expected. He's very experienced. Well, because he did a thorough background check. He's met him 100 times before. So Vladimir Putin, I thought he was, Vladimir Putin comes off extremely confident. The guy is very confident in himself. And he, he basically has set up an empire, an empire which can't oust him. And what I think fundamentally, which I wish the world was different, he is not looking to get along with us. What he's looking to do is rattle our cage to the point we get out of his way and he reestablishes the Soviet Union. That's about it. What I was amazed at, Joe Biden came out, and I thought, that was pretty smooth. And then I text uh, our reporters on the scene. It was on prompter. His open remarks were on prompter. And afterwards, he ran out of gas. Look, he's an old 78 years old. But I could not believe the way he just yelled at Caitlin Collins. Uh, and then he apologized a little bit later. Uh, but his whole prepared list, listen to him just talking about how he tries to script the media. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Or his handlers do. Cut seven. I'll take your questions. And as usual, folks, they gave me a list of the people I'm going to call on. So, uh, Jonathan, Associated Press. I mean, come on. Is that embarrassing? Vladimir Putin is winging it. 
with a language barrier. You know what was brought up, too? I don't know if anyone picked up on this, but they got a question from, I thought, a Russian reporter who said, you made yourself available for a American network, and they never give us any availability. Why do you do that? And I thought, that's interesting. He is, as a guy leading a dictatorship, more transparent, open, and available than our president. Look, I, you know, I think he should be doing more interviews. The, pre- the president of the United States, the guy that was supposed to have trouble is Donald Trump. Doesn't have a great grasp of history. Doesn't have the political background. But he would sit down and answer anything at D-Day or beyond and give a speech without looking at the copy. It's just not the same now. But if the policies were better, I'd forgive it all. When we come back, Senator Joni Ernst, she's got six more years, just won re-election, she's got a brand new book out, she'll talk about it. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. One of the things that I think, understandably, there was a good deal of skepticism about with the G7 sign on and, and give America back its sort of leadership role. I think it did. It wasn't me, but they're glad America's back. They're glad America's back, and they acted that way. And uh, I thought, quite frankly, I was in a much better position to represent the West after the previous three meetings with Putin, that knowing that the rest of the West was behind us. Really? You like the best of the rest of the West was actually going for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from uh, the Netherlands to Germany. Uh, they were going to be subjected to the whims and the free uh, or the discounted oil and gas of Russia, who might want to turn that down should the sanctions go up. So the one thing that I think that President Biden has thrown me off by, by saying this over and over again, they let us back in, we're back, we're back is that when you're a coach or you're a leader, you never want to be liked. Because if you're liked and you become friends, in fact, you've got to create that distance. Because if you become friends, it, it kind of clouds your judgment. And what, what Joe Biden wants to do is be liked. He wants to be one of the guys. No, you're the leader. You're the one in front. And you have to make uncomfortable decisions because it's America first while keeping your allies close. That's a balance that a colonel in the military would understand. Like my next guest, Senator Joni Ernst, Armed Services Committee member, uh, Small Business, Environment, and Public Works Committee, author of a book now out on paperback called Daughter of the Heartland, My Ode to the Country uh, That Raised Me, and it's just uh, her memoir with a new epilogue. Senator, welcome back. Oh, thanks so much, Brian. I really appreciate it. Senator, do you, do you buy into what I said? When you're a leader, you can't really necessarily look to win over the troops. you got to lead the troops. He looks like he wants to be one of the guys. Why? Uh, well, and that is a really great question, Brian. Why? Um, we need to show the world that America can inspire and lead. Um, to be a leader, the way the Army defines it is someone who inspires others to follow them toward the common goal or objective for the good of the unit or the organization. Uh, President Biden is not inspiring 
anyone when he is basically abdicating to uh, Vladimir Putin, calling him a worthy adversary and and so on and so forth. But um, we are lacking that inspiration in this particular leader. And I, I really wish that President Biden would be stronger and put the United States of America first, because we are the greatest nation on the face of this planet. Senator, you're the expert. You're the one who put on the camouflage. But I think our two enemies are China and Russia, and we have to approach it like they don't want peace. They don't want to coexist. They want to beat us. And Russia can economically, but China can. And we have to identify them that way. There might not be any common ground. We might have to flat off, take off the gloves, and compete. And we can't convince our allies of the same objectives and urgency. Do you think it's possible that that reality is sinking in? The world has changed since Biden was there last. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, Brian, because I I do think that we need to have a heavier hand when it comes to nuclear adversaries like China and Russia. We have the big four. We call them the big four in the military. It's, It's China. It's Russia. It's Iran. Uh, President Biden is lifting sanctions um, from various Iranians and, and businesses. And then we have North Korea. And so far, what we have seen is a very light-handed touch coming from President Biden in trying to renegotiate a number of deals, um, allowing Nord Stream 2 to, to continue. Um, all of this is not in America's best interests, nor our allies. And I'm not sure who at the White House is advising him on this, perhaps John Kerry. Um, We saw where that went in the Obama administration. But we don't see America leading. We see America abdicating to near-peer adversaries. That should never be the case. The last thing I want you to hear is how we're using our domestic politics or hurting us internationally. I'm not saying we should hide our problems, but we should be a little coy and understand the ramifications go beyond our borders. I'm not going to play the whole clip, but here's Vladimir Putin. When asked about the treatment of Navalny, he did not answer that directly. He talked about America. Cut 15. As for who is killing whom or throwing whom in jail, people came to the U.S. Congress with political demands. 400 people. Over 400 people had criminal charges placed on them. They faced prison sentences up to 20, maybe even 25 years. They're being called domestic terrorists. Some people, some people died, and uh, one of the people that died, they were simply shot on the spot by uh, the police, although they were not threatening the police with any weapons. In- I'm not saying January 6th was great. I'm not saying Black Lives Matter when they wreck cities is a positive. But uh, not having Joe Biden there to counter those statements, let the world think you can poison your enemies in a plane, jail them when they land, and say, just like America does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, Brian. And what a complete failure not to have President Biden prepped and ready to go for a press conference to push back on the propaganda that is being spread by Vladimir Putin. Um, and a terrible travesty. Of course, the United States is not perfect. But I challenge any other nation to stand beside the United States and, and uh, you know, weigh the different freedoms, the values and opportunities that we provide for our citizens against what they do. 
So absolutely. We just have to have stronger leadership um, coming from the Biden administration. Unfortunately, we haven't seen it when it really has mattered in these last several weeks. Um, and I, I hope we can get better. But I'm, I'm telling you, I, I'm doubtful. Let's move on to domestic politics now. The infrastructure bill. Are you part of the bipartisan push a proposal that's on the president's desk right now? No, I, I haven't been directly engaged with those discussions. Um, obviously, I have discussed these one-off uh, with uh, various Democrats and Republicans. Um, but what we're looking at with what Democrats and Republicans have been working on um, is important because it is bipartisan. Uh, the president's plan when he proposed it was uh, filled with tax hikes on Amer- middle America. Uh, it was filled with a lot of things that we don't typically think of as infrastructure. So I am very thankful that what this bipartisan group is focusing on is actually what we consider infrastructure. It is, uh, it is a little higher price tag than uh, maybe what some of us want to see, but at least it is going into roads, bridges, waterways, and not a lot of social policy. Um, so, you know, at least we have this point where we're working together in a bipartisan manner. I'd like to see that continue. Unfortunately, we see um, the Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer, who wants to ram through reconciliation anyway. And what we want to do is stop that. We want to make sure that we're engaged in discussions and we can see what benefits our constituents. Yeah, I think that he was moving towards reconciliation, even though this has been drawn up in a bicameral, bipartisan way. So uh, it makes everybody feel like they're wasting their time, in my humble opinion. Uh, Senator, before we talk about your book, the last thing about inflation, you just mentioned the spending. Yesterday, the Fed, in a a long statement, one of the things they said is, yeah, we told you inflation was going to grow at 2%. It looks like it's going to go at 3%. We told you it was going to be short term. It looks like it could be long term. What's your reaction to that? Well, my reaction is, of course, we're seeing this. Um, We have really unlimited spending coming from the Biden administration, and we have an economy that is simply um, not keeping up. It was on its way up. But when we are, as a federal government, um, and I'm, I'm opposed to this, but as a federal government, when we're paying people above and beyond what state unemployment insurance is to stay home and not go to work, take a look around. Um, state cities are opening. Even the even liberal cities like Washington, D.C. are now fully open. Um, people need to go back to work. And I, I understand there may be cases where some individuals can't return to work. But when we have small businesses and employers that are begging people, please come to work. We need staff. We need employees. And the federal government continues to pay them to stay home. Of course, we see inflation out there. Uh, we have so many things working against each other in this economy. Um, we need to get folks back to work. We need to stop spending the way we have been in the federal government. And hopefully we'll see inflation come down. Senator Joni Ernst, my guest. Uh, Senator, you won that reelection. A lot of people thought you weren't. You did. You uh, One of the reasons why Republicans so disappointed to lose Georgia, they were worried about your seat. They are worried about Maine and you guys both won. So let's talk about your book. Now I'm paperback. It is called uh, Daughter of the Heartland. So tell me what it was like growing up on a farm with two hardworking parents. 
Oh, I loved it. And I, I can honestly say I had such a, a tremendous uh, childhood. Uh, and, you know, we had very little in my family, but we didn't recognize that because all of my friends, the people I grew up with in southwest rural Iowa, really were in the in the same situation. So you don't know what you don't have. It's, it's okay. Um, but I did have a home that was filled with a lot of love and an older sister and a younger brother. We grew up on the farm with my mom and dad and, right. of course, aunts, uncles, you know, everyone pitching in. A lot of hard work. But my folks taught me about service and sacrifice, they and did. that was a very important part of it. And my that life. led you to the military, where you left as a lieutenant colonel. So you're a hardworking person with great values, and you said, I'm not done. I want to learn more. What did you pick up in the military? Well, absolutely that um, you need to be a leader, and that's important, which means you do lead from the front. You know, I, I never asked anything of my soldiers that I wasn't able to accomplish myself. Um, that's important is that the men and women that you lead need to see you setting the example. So that was very important to me. But also uh, going through the decision-making process, knowing and understanding there are multiple courses of action laid out in front of you. You have to determine what is the right move to make at the right time. And of course, you get a lot of scar tissue on your hind end um, from all the times that commanders may chew you out along the way. And right. you learn a lot from that as well. So that toughened me up. And certainly moving from the military into politics, it has come in very handy. That scar tissue is good to have. So, Senator, you're in control of the farm, outside weather. You're in control of the military. Performance matters. But when it comes to your personal life, you become a public figure. And you get those six years, and you have this upset win in Iowa. And then you go through personal issues. But instead of keeping it personal and private on the farm or in a small town, it becomes national news about your divorce. How hard was it going through your divorce publicly? Yeah, it was very, very hard, Brian. And uh, the documents from my divorce became public, and uh, it was not what I wanted. And I did not want to share a lot of those personal things that had happened in my marriage publicly. Um, So issues of uh, domestic violence and you know, just a a number, a myriad of very personal, very hurtful things um, came out, and it was uh, devastating to me. It was hard for my family, and it was so unfortunate because I do believe whether it is in the instance of sexual assault, domestic violence, I believe that survivors should have the right to determine when they want to tell their story, if they ever want to tell their story. And I wasn't given that chance. I was outed um, publicly uh, through these divorce documents. Um, but I had many people that came to me and said, Joni, you know, you have survived um, rape as a young woman. You have been through um, very violent episodes in your marriage, and yet you went on. You were a battalion commander. You were a United States senator. And they said, it's important that other women see you and see that there is light beyond the darkness. And that's what I try to share in my book, Daughter of the Heartland, is that we should not allow others to define us. We shouldn't allow these episodes to define who we are. We determine 
who we are. And I choose to go beyond that. And next thing you know, so not only you do that, you get through that, you win another hard-fought election, and you got five and a half more years uh, in this very— uh, this very heated place called Washington, D.C., to make a difference. Uh, it talks about persevering. I imagine just reading your story, a lot of people are going to relate to it, sadly, when it comes to the personal stuff as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, Senator, thanks for sharing it. I appreciate it. Oh, Brian, thank you so much. Oh, Daughter I, of the Heartland, thank you. Yeah, lastly, how was your, how was your dinner at uh, the vice president's <laughs> quarters? It was actually very enjoyable, Brian. And and I do want folks to know that when we do these bipartisan women's events, we set the politics aside. We work on developing relationships because there are times in Washington, D.C., when you need to find a Democrat that will be supportive of my efforts or someone else's efforts, um, we then have greater opportunity to get things done. So, I mean, the one thing I'm accused of, um, sometimes uh, my wife will go out with her friends and I know their husbands and I'll say, did you basically talk about us all night? And she'll go, why do you think that? We never talk about us. I'm wondering when you're with a politician, do you talk about personal stuff? Are you talking about the border? Are you talking about Putin? What is, what's is the small personal. talk like? Yes, it is all personal. And um, so what we did do, though, I am guilty of this, um, I did ask the the vice president's um, scheduler if I could get on her schedule later because I do have business that I want to discuss with her. Um, But when we do these events, it's all personal. Again, it is networking. It is personal developing relationships. All right. You're doing it. And you'll probably get on our calendar because you showed up. Senator Joni Ernst, thanks so much. Daughter of the Heartland. Go pick it up. Thanks, Brian. You got it. Uh, Hey, back with some of your calls and some thoughts this hour. It's been busy. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. We close with the clock. Right now, it is still Greg Gutfeld, unless we find someone taller. Coming up straight ahead, what is Hunter Biden doing in this photo? Greg Gutfeld knows he'll be with us right after the break. And that's that's what he looks like when he's dressed casual. I don't like you. I asked you to dress up, Greg. (laughs) There's a dress code on prime time. It's kind of like you, like, opening a car wash and washing the car with your hairpiece. Right. It's like you, you, you take something that you're known for, which right. is your fake hair, and you're using it to wipe down the car. He's using his Coke straw to paint. And I think, you know what? Good for him. He's not hurting anybody. He's just taking people's money. That is a little of the chaos at the end of the show. They do this thing. Uh, they just give put uh, 10 seconds. Uh, excuse me. One minute on the clock. We do four stories. And much to my chagrin, they chose Greg Gutfeld. He asked, evidently he goes by the pod now. They figured out where to, they located the primetime staff and says, what about tonight, every night? So they put him on with me. It was fun. I mean, if you, you give him some shots before he gave you that last one last night, no? No, it's, I, I think it's fun. And by the way, Greg is beating almost everyone. I thought he beat the Late Show the other night, too. Is it amazing? A cable network beating the Tonight Show five days a week it make, at eleven o'clock. It makes total sense. The Late Shows are terrible now. We've always, you've always been talking about it. Yeah. 
there's a story about Stephen Colbert, who broke Stephen Colbert, and it's actually like the title reads. It wasn't an homage. He's not funny anymore. He's all about being a Democrat. He's on the wrong channel. Get him off. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We'll be privileged to be joined by one of the great uh, foreign policy minds in the country, Ian Bremmer, president of the Eurasia Group uh, and G Zero Media. He'll be with us. I got to get his perspective on the G Seven, the NATO summit, and of course the uh, the squaring off between Vladimir Putin as well as Joe Biden, who's back home now. The vice president of the United States seems to have gotten a total pass over her horrendous visit to uh, Guatemala and Mexico, where she couldn't answer tough questions like, "Why haven't you gone to the border?" Uh, so we'll talk about that, too, and we come to you from New York and heard around the country, around the world, a country that's beginning to open up from sea to shining sea. Let's go to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. It reads to me like they are agreeing to split what we all call infrastructure from what the squad calls infrastructure. So we're going to split the two bills. But if they require Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin and all the other moderate Democrats to vote for both bills, then what have Republicans gained? I mean, you still get the whole bill. Uh, Trey Gowdy spelling it out about what is a good deal and a bad deal. Moving. That's what seems to be happening on the massive voting. That's H.R. 1 and infrastructure bills as the most powerful Joe in Washington, Manchin, is starting to release his demands to fellow Dems. Hold on tight. This could get crazy. Number two. Today, we are announcing that Texas will build a border wall in our state to help secure our border. I told you that Texas would step up and respond. Today, we begin that response. I'm not sure they can, but man, they are determined, taking it into their own hands. States citing a common cause, securing the border and their safety and security, now combining efforts to build a wall and sending their own National Guard to the border to help out Arizona and Texas, as calls to help those states are answered by governors, not Vice President Harris. Number one. I told President Putin my agenda is not against Russia. It's for the American people. Fighting COVID-19, rebuilding our economy, reestablishing relationships around the world with our allies and friends, and protecting the American people. That's my responsibility as president. Wow. What was said, what was promised, and what was accomplished, and why I'm the rubber your glue defense might just work for now for the Russians as the fawning American press give old Joe a complete pass despite a befuddling blow-up at the end to CNN. Joining us now, a man that will never uh, respond emotionally to a foreign policy issue, Ian Bremmer. He's cool and calculated and knowledgeable, uh, the president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. Ian, welcome back. Hey, Brian. Great to be with you, man. So, Ian, you've seen how many of uh, how many have you covered between the G7s when they were the G8s and the NATO summits? You've seen a lot of this stuff, right? Yeah, dozens. Absolutely. So give me an idea. Bring me through this. A 78-year-old president who's been on the scene since the 70s, who, is, who used to be chairman of foreign relations, 
goes and visits some leaders that he knows, some he knows well, some he knows of, that was just vice president. How was is, how is he received on his first stop? Uh, well, he was received well uh, because the allies are generally happy to have anyone but Trump. That's particularly true for the European Union. Having said that, the bigger story is that anti-China sentiment is growing everywhere here in the United States, bipartisan, but also among our Asian allies in the Quad, that's Japan, Australia, and India, all of whom were invited as special guests to the G7, um, and among the European allies too. If there was a big takeaway from this week, the big takeaway is this was a bad week for Beijing. Italy said they're leaving Belt and Road, the only G7 member that had joined. The uh, coordination in the communique that came out of the G7 on China was like nothing we had ever seen before. U.S. legislation, anti-China legislation, bipartisan fashion, moving through Senate um, in the last week. Um, And the United States and the Europeans buried the hatchet on that big multi-billion dollar um, Airbus-Boeing trade conflict, the orientation much more on China as well. So, I mean, that was probably the most significant takeaway. Maybe the U.S. gets a little bit of credit for that, but it's mostly that Xi Jinping has has been screwing up. A couple of things. Uh, I'm going to read you some. I don't have the whole thing in front of me. I just looked it up now from Monday. Uh, this is what's in the, the text of the G7 read. Uh, Their goal is strengthening transparency and accountability, including reiterating our commitment to the full implementation and improved compliance with the international health regulations. So they have this readout. I'm trying to see what the readout is on China. It seems so benign. I'm I'm surprised you think it's aggressive. Yeah, you have um, the announcement of this Build Back Better world, which is meant to be a direct competitor to the digital belt and road that Beijing is doing, getting the quad and the Europeans. Listen, on board I love that, that idea, but Ian, let me. Have, there was no money behind it. There's no. There's no strategy there. It's just a proposal right now, right? Actually, um, there is money behind it. The first multi-billion deal on telecom in Southeast Asia is coming in the next few weeks. It's just that the Europeans hadn't really been read in, and they didn't like the fact this was being driven by the U.S. And Asian allies actually started under the Trump administration with Australia, Japan, and the U.S. about a year ago, and Biden picked it up. Again, China policy, one of the only areas, Brian, where you're seeing broad bipartisan agreement in the United States of every issue of foreign policy. You also saw direct statements against Chinese uh, treatment of South China Sea issues, uh, Taiwan, the Uyghurs, the Europeans supporting the United States in an investigation into the origins of COVID. Not that anyone expects we're going to get transparency from China, but the Chinese can't believe that this is happening right now, right? So, I mean, the fact that you've got all of these American allies actually putting their names on something like this, China was by far the most contentious piece of the discussion in the G7. They even shut the internet off while they were having the behind-closed-doors conversation because they didn't want any of the disagreements to get out. And at the end, they all actually framed it the same way. I mean, I have to say, G7s are usually nothing burgers. They actually moved on this one. So now they used to control 51% of the world's uh, economic power. Now it's 30% of the world's economy. And in response, uh, China basically said that the days of the G7 dictating uh, global opinions uh, and rules are over. So ever since uh, since President Xi became the president for life, 
throughout elections. Uh, they've been a different country. They've been much more belligerent and determined to oust us from the number one spot. But when you see that Germany, and evidently Germany in particular, seems more concerned about trade than they are what they say is starting another Cold War, you think Germany signed on to this? Yeah, I think that um, the right, that's the right question, Brian. The Germans and the French are the countries that are least aligned with the United States on this. Uh, but they still far prefer um, the idea of a multilateral order that has rule of law and respect for human rights than they do uh, China being able to dictate outcomes to other countries. So no, they don't want a Cold War, but the United States doesn't want a Cold War either. I mean, part of this issue is that in the U.S., the national security arms of government are very strong in their influence um, in, in creating policy. In Germany, I mean, German intelligence, German Defense Department, they, they to the Ministry of Defense, they generally are aligned with the United States. They just have nowhere near the level of influence in overall German policy because they don't spend very much on defense and because intelligence in Germany is not like a very significant developed part of their government. So that's where the misalignment really comes from. It's less that the Germans only care about their business and the United States only cares about national security. Keep in mind, Brian, you know, you've got a lot of very significant actors in the U.S. that desperately want to engage more in China. Think about, you know, the CEO of Goldman Sachs or Larry Fink or think about LeBron James or Elon Musk. I mean, these are serious American figures that only want to do more business in China. The thing is that American policymakers are much less aligned with them than you have on the continent of Europe. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually thought um, that there'd be more momentum because even without the pandemic, the aggression of China was alarming. Then they poison the world, lie about it, blame us, still haven't told us how it happened, resent all investigation, don't give us direct access to it. It seems like so many people are compromised uh, from uh, in our medical community. Now there seems to be a push to find out where this thing started. Now that you can't say Donald Trump is being xenophobic, you could actually say the Wuhan, this Wuhan lab needs to be examined. And if you look at the genomes and the makeup of this virus, it looks as manufactured. And that's not Brian or Ian Bremmer saying that. These uh, Dr. Kwai saying that. It's Jamie Metzl saying this. It's other experts saying you have to look at this. So there's growing momentum there. But to not have a joint communicate, I thought the joint communicate could have been stronger. And yesterday, when uh, I, Fox actually asked a question and about China, and he basically says China is doing everything to be transparent about the virus. And I'm thinking to myself, really? Just answer the question. I, I know about diplomatic speak, but the WHO doing the investigation means we're never going to get to the bottom of it. And the fact that they can't get access means, again, they're not going to get to the bottom of it. So you see something beyond what I see. Well, I, I completely agree with you. We are never going to get access from the Chinese government on this issue, period. What I'm telling you, Japan is the third largest economy in the world. They are our strongest ally in Asia. The Japanese prime minister was the first leader invited to have a head of state meeting in the United States to the White House by President Biden. South Korea was number two. Japan is 100 percent aligned with the United States on China policy right now. Australia, 100 percent aligned with the United States on China policy. Canada, damn close. The U.K., not so far off. As you mentioned, Germany, less so. 
but still more aligned today than they have been over the last five years. I, I, what I'm telling you, Brian, is that all of this behavior by China is actually creating a significant backlash. Yes, we experience it more strongly in Washington and New York than some of our allies do around the world, but there is momentum on this issue. And if I were Xi Jinping right now or one of his advisors, I'd have to be concerned that my strategy is not working the way you might think it would. I mean, for all of China's cover-up of the pandemic, they were the first economy to roar back. Their supply chain reopened. They did the quarantine. They, they did the lockdowns, the contact tracing. They were the one major economy in the world that was growing in 2020. The only other economy that grew was like Vietnam is number 35 or 37. Literally no one else grew. You would think that would make them more confident. You'd think that give them more influence. Not at all. Not at all. So, I mean, for all of the this takes time and we don't have a lot of global leadership and right. the United States is politically divided, what I'm saying is if you really want to take a look at this week in totality and not just from the U.S. perspective but from the global perspective, what you see is that this was a bad week for Beijing. I hear you. Uh, here is, here's the answer I was referring to to – uh, Peter Ducey's question on China. China's trying very hard to project itself as a responsible and, and very, very forthcoming nation. That they are trying very hard to talk about how they're taking and helping the world in terms of COVID-19 and vaccines. And they're trying very hard. Look, certain things you don't have to explain to the people of the world. They see the results. Is China really actually trying to get to the bottom of this? So you read, read between the lines for me. Yeah, they're not trying at all. And, and what's so why not say that? This? Why, not, why not use that? Tell me, tell me if I'm wrong. Why not just say the China's, uh, China's actions, we still have so many questions. Their actions since this virus slammed the world has literally cost millions of lives because they weren't transparent about what was about to hit us. And we in the U.S., and the, we thought the CDC had the right test when we had our first open known test in Washington. But we had the wrong test because China told us uh, it, was, it was something different than it was. With 600,000 Americans dead and millions dead around the world, we demand that country be transparent how it happened at the very least to stop the next one. Why not be that to me is I get it. Yeah, I, I think that I think that Biden could have been stronger in his language uh, on that issue. Absolutely. But I think the point still anyone listening understood what that point was. I, I think that the United States today, uh, you know, is in the strongest position in the world in terms of our ability to respond now to coronavirus. We've got the vaccines. Yep. They're the best vaccines in the world. We've rolled them out. Our allies are a little bit behind us, but not much. The Canadians only about a month or two behind us. Europeans, same thing. Japanese are having the biggest problems right now, but even they're improving. And we have the ability to make a difference. China pretending that they're able to help the world. Actually, the announcement from the United States and our allies at the G7 we're doing 500 million additional vaccines that we're delivering to the poorer countries of the world. Our allies are matching us on that. It's too small. It's too late. But it's still the biggest display of leadership from any quarter, anywhere in the world, mm -hmm. since the pandemic actually started. That is a really good position for America and its allies to be in as we're sitting down on the global stage. And, and I think we want to take advantage of that. If there's anything you want to criticize in the last week, it's that we hit, we're hit. we hitting singles when we should be swinging for the fences. 
That that would be my point. You okay. know, I got one, one other point, Brian, yep. is that for all of the partisanship in the United States right now, yep. we're so divided. We feel so divided, have so many political enemies. When we announced that we were doing 500 million vaccines for poor countries, that we're donating them, I did not see one member of Congress, not a Democrat, not a Republican, criticize that at all. An act of charity, an act of responsible leadership from the United States. We all came together and said, good for us. Thank God we're doing that again. Hey, that's a a pretty good message, frankly. I hear you. Uh, All right. How do we get your uh, newsletter? Uh, you uh, look us up on g0media.com. Check out what we're doing. Ian Bremmer, thanks so much. Appreciate the insight. Great talking to you. All right, uh, back in a moment. And then we have Ambassador Alex Verschbell, who used to be a NATO Deputy Secretary and an ambassador uh, to Russia and South Korea. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I appreciate it. We're going to go inside the Russia story. I didn't get to Russia because I was kind of struck by Ian Bremmer's uh, thought. And I hope he is 100 percent right. And his sources are fantastic. If you ever seen him on television, he doesn't really play politics. And I appreciate that. But he is he is more optimistic than ever before about us and about our ability to take on China and that the world understands how bad it is. Now, let's be honest. What more evidence do you need that that China is a problem? Do you know today they went into a the Democratic newspaper, the, the newspaper that's been very critical of them in Hong Kong, and they arrested everybody. They steamrolled and took over the whole, uh, the whole province. They broke the international agreement that they signed with the British, saying they were going to be autonomous within China. Didn't happen. Done. They continued to harass Taiwan. And those are the minor things compared to everything else they've done. And now the world community has to demand to see how this virus started. And I think part of the reason is that you will find that many people in the West, many organizations in the West, Anthony Fauci on down, found a way to contribute to this gain-of-function research that might have indeed created a virus that is so lethal we couldn't stop it for 15 months. And maybe that is why people are covering for China. And when it first started, I believe they didn't know what was happening. And then they overreacted, and then they just hoped it would go away. Instead, it started in Europe, then came to our shores in New York, then went to Washington, so they hit us in the West, and then they hit us in the East. We need answers. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. But as for American sources, they've said that most of the cyber attacks in the world are carried out from the cyber realm of the United States. In second place is Canada. Afterwards, Latin American countries, and then comes Great Britain. 
Russia on this list. Where's Russia on this list? Well, we are a country whose cyber territory has the, the most... Uh, Russia's not on the list. <laughs> is that hysterical? This is the country that has these ransomware experts uh, besieging our nation, first with the, uh, with the Colonial Pipeline, and then, of course, uh, with this meat from manufacturing company that means so much to our country and others. And then we find out how many attacks are taking place on a regular basis, all located, almost all located inside Russia, but they're not on the list. We are the worst. Isn't that interesting? That's what happens when you leave Vladimir Putin alone on the world stage with nobody to push back. Ambassador Alexander Vershbo is with us now. Man, what credentials? NATO Deputy Secretary General from 2012 to 16. Uh, he was also U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Russia, South Korea, and Assistant Secretary of Defense, currently a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. Ambassador, welcome back. Good to be here, Brian. Ambassador, what do you think about how the events uh, of what came out of the three-hour face-to-face between uh, President Biden, President Putin, and then the single press conferences after? What do you walk away with? Well, I think uh, on the whole, Biden came away uh, in a good position uh, to put Putin kind of more to the test over the next few months, and we'll see whether he's ready to change his behavior. I'm, I'm not optimistic about that. But I think it was actually better that they didn't do a joint press conference. Putin is a master of uh, rhetorical tricks, and, and what you just were playing shows that he lies through his teeth when it comes to ex- accepting Russian responsibility for cyber attacks. He claims they have no troops in eastern Ukraine. I mean, you can't trust a word the guy says. So, uh, But, but Ambassador, wouldn't it be his- great, and with all due respect, wouldn't it be great to sit there, and even Joe Biden at 78, to say, I'm listening to the interpretation, but I don't understand what you're saying because that is just not true. The cyber attacks that come from the U.S., I can't even count on one hand. And then when you uh, talk about the attacks, look what has happened from your land, which you admitted to even over the last three weeks. So wouldn't that have been better for the world to see us standing up to him? And wouldn't that have been heartening to the people of Belarus and Ukraine? Yeah, well, I thought some of the uh, Western journalists did a pretty go- good job of pushing back on Putin. Uh, but I think you know, what what Biden did was actually sort of challenge him on a very explicit basis. They said, let's declare 16 kinds of critical infrastructure literally off limits to cyber attacks. And uh, that'll be kind of a verifiable way of, of testing Putin's claims that Russia has nothing to do with it. If uh, they lay off these 16 categories of critical infrastructure, then Biden will have... Uh, taken a step forward. If not, he will have exposed Putin for the, for the, for the two-faced liar that he is. But, Ambassador, here's where uh, you have all the years of experience. But from my perspective, being that it's already cost us so much, and if you think of in Virginia paying $7 for gas because uh, some Russian-trained GRU members who are now working on their own as freelancers decide to take the Colonial Pipeline to its knees, because that happens, why can't there be, t- starting today, there are no more cyber attacks coming from your country. And these are what we're capable of doing. You turn around that page and you show them the five industries that will be vulnerable if we're hit again. At this yeah. point, there's too much at stake. What, what about the ones that aren't on that top 16 list? Yeah, well, we haven't seen the list. I don't know how complete it is. But I think the basic approach was was a good one to, te- to test Putin. Uh, and what you say is correct. We have to not only say, but be prepared to act uh, concretely in retaliation for these attacks if they do continue. I mean, it's a complex game attributing who who actually did it and being sure that we don't uh, 
make ourselves more vulnerable uh, by revealing some of our, our cyber techniques. But I think that Biden was very clear that we do have very uh, sophisticated capabilities and we're prepared to use them, not necessarily tit for tat. We may re react in an asymmetric way, but definitely hold the Russians accountable if this kind of uh, cyber attacks and ransomware attacks uh, continue. And uh, he has to follow through on that. You can't draw red lines and then fail to enforce them. But I think Biden's pretty, pretty uh, experienced. He, he knows that uh, empty talk would be absolutely counterproductive with a, with a, a guy like Putin who can sense weakness if, uh, if you, uh, you show a glimmer of that. Absolutely. So um, maybe by not putting a, a firm line in the, in the sand, maybe he senses that. But what he did is never answer everybody's question directly. He would turn it around on us. Here he gets a question about how he treats uh, people that are protesting him. Uh, and here's what he said. Cut 16. And an entire movement developed known as Black Lives Matter. I'm not going to comment on that, but here's what I do want to say. What we saw was disorder, destruction, violations of the law, etc. We feel sympathy for the United States of America, but we don't want that to happen on our territory. And we're doing our utmost in order to not allow it to happen. And uh, some fears it has nothing to do with anything. So he doesn't want unrest in his streets. He saw Black Lives Matter and he learned from it. What's your take on that? Yeah. that do people actually believe this, that they can equate well, the two? Well, no, this is a classic Russian uh, disinformation uh, technique. It goes back 100 years. We now call it uh, by the cute name of whataboutism. You know, we raise one thing that they're doing. They say, well, what about how you've persecuted the black people, uh, you know, over the years? Uh, and, and this was exactly what Putin was doing yesterday. Uh, and Biden, I think, was very explicit, saying some of these analogies he was drawing were just flat ridiculous. Uh, but it shows you how uh, defensive Putin feels about uh, criticism. Uh, and I think, again, it was good that he was pressed by the journalists. Uh, you know, why do you have so many political oppositionists? Uh, who are either dead or in prison, uh, are you afraid of a fair fight in, in the upcoming uh, parliamentary elections? And the answer is, even though Putin didn't give the answer, the answer is, is yes. He's afraid of any opposition which could ultimately topple his corrupt kleptocratic regime. So who is he? You watched him emerge. We were coming off Yeltsin. We were helping them. We were sending over bankers to teach him about mortgage systems. And, you know, we he obviously had a drinking problem, but he acted heroically in saving Gorbachev. We thought the Russians were heading towards a more open society. Is Vladimir Putin solely responsible for that change? And when he goes, the Russians get back on a more unifying tract? Or is there more like him? Well, I mean, there are definitely more like him. He's built a system that's uh, composed mainly of, uh, of former KGB officers like himself, people who believe that Russia can only be ruled by a strong hand, by a strong state, that the citizens don't have any inherent rights. And, uh, you know, and he does believe that the West is trying to topple his regime. That's how he views the popular protests that have sprung up in, in Ukraine, in Georgia, in Belarus. Uh, but there are still, I think, plenty of Russians who would like to get back on the path that they were on under Gorbachev and Yeltsin. Uh, you know, they may be a bit brainwashed by Russian propaganda to think that the, you know, the West is, uh, if not worse, at least just as bad as Russia. 
and uh, it'll take some time, I think, for the debate to open up again. And of course, Putin has, has changed the constitution, so he might be in power for another 10 or even 15 years. Yeah, but I, I do think the Russian people ultimately will will push again from from the bottom up for the kind of freedom and uh, diversity that they had uh, under Yeltsin. And even in the first couple of years of Putin, when, when I was ambassador, things weren't anywhere near as bad as they are now. Uh, there was still entrepreneurship, uh, people trying to you know, change society through, through, civil, through civic organizations. Uh, you really had uh, a Western-style society emerging, but Putin has really suppressed all of that. And it'll take a while for... Uh, sort of the yearnings for freedom to uh, to begin to come back. Uh, Ambassador, you know, I guess it's still bad over there with the coronavirus. Their GDP, I looked it up, is 0.0. Their per capita income is $10,000. Ours is $65,000. Not many people want their economy, but they're punching above their weight militarily, and they certainly are showing their muscle in the Ukraine, and now they have a presence in uh, the Middle East. I want you to hear what Gary Kasparov said, you know, the legendary chess player, and he wants democratic reforms like uh, like we all want. Listen to what he told me yesterday. Europe keeps caving in to Putin without American leadership. Yep. And Biden was supposed to stop that, even campaign on it. He called Putin a killer, correctly. But looking tough in Geneva or using strong words doesn't matter. Action matters. And so far, Biden is failing that test. And no matter what he says after this meeting, no matter what kind of press release uh, the, the White House and State Department will, will put uh, on, it's the, the fact you know, stays there. Putin got what he wanted because there is no common interest. There's no area of cooperation between Putin's mafia regime and the United States. Was he wrong? Well, he may go a little too far, but he's right. Actions speak louder than words. Uh, and I think Biden has done a number of things. He imposed some tough sanctions back in April uh, on a lot of the things that were left hanging in the air after, at the end of the Trump administration, you know, the bounties on soldiers in Afghanistan. It's proven not to be true, by the way. Well, no, I think it was true. I mean, how much how, the scope of it was not ever fully fully verified, but also on the solar winds hack and some other things. Uh, on the other hand, there were some mixed signals regarding this Nord Stream two pipeline. So Biden has to kind of tighten up his his team and you know, make clear that these threats will be acted upon if Putin doesn't uh, change his behavior in places like Ukraine or Syria, or in terms of the the cyber attacks, which I think. Uh, are the most immediate thing. At the same time, we have to do our our homework in reducing our vulnerability. You know, we are very heavily dependent on the internet, and I think our companies need to invest more in in the protection of their networks, so that these uh, ransomware attackers absolutely. don't don't find us as easy prey. Uh, absolutely, you got. If you're a private industry, that's great. Now you got to give a punch list uh, in order to control our uh, oil and gas. You have to do certain things because you affect the public sector. And that's got to happen almost immediately. I really don't know enough about cyber defense, but I've also been told by people that do know that we're as good as it gets. We have that ability. And if the same investment you have to put for environmental causes has to be for cyber protection, because it's not just about you and your profits. It's about us paying $7 for gas. It's about meat not being available in supermarkets or three times of what it is. And I think that has got to be an immediate movement that Republicans and Democrats 
can get behind. So I got to ask you, when you look at what's happening with China, we've never seen anything like this. They just took Hong Kong. No one's really made a big deal of it. They're threatening to take Taiwan. They're not coming clean on how this coronavirus started or access to the Wuhan lab. How do we stop the Belt and Road program effectively? How do we alert the world to the emergency of needing to act in a united way? Well, I think the first thing is to uh, you know unite uh, other democracies uh, behind a common strategy, and I think Biden made some progress in that regard with the G7, uh, and even at NATO, which has been a bit uh, hesitant to identify China as, as as part of its set of threats. Uh, they went much farther uh, under U.S. pressure to do that. But again, you have to act on this. You can't just uh, put out nice declarations at summit meetings. Uh, But it's sort of the same way we've uh, been trying to deal with Russia since they invaded Ukraine. Uh, Impose costs, create pressures, but also create incentives for them to play by the rules. And I think we actually have a little bit more ability to do that with China because it is a trading nation. It ultimately does uh, depend on having the international rules of the road that everybody abides by, even though it wants to renegotiate every rule in its favor. But we, you know, but, but. You've got to use the leverage very strategically against China. And we do have to, as you mentioned, Taiwan, uh, you know, think of how best to deter the Chinese from doing to Taiwan what the Russians are trying to do to Ukraine. Uh, so it means both showing that we're going to stand up for Ukraine, but also shifting some of our military capacity and getting allies lined up in the Asia-Pacific uh, to present a united front to China so they don't... Uh, do to Taiwan what they did to uh, to Hong Kong. And Ambassador, last question. You were former Deputy Secretary of General under NATO. Uh, President Trump went in there famously and said, you guys start, got to start paying your fair share, and they did. Uh, millions of dollars more. I think it's $400 million or a billion dollars more. When it gets that high, I kind of get confused because I don't have it. Uh, but that's one thing. The other area is, by the end of this, Macron was saying NATO is brain dead and kind of pushing it to move forward. Do you think there's something to be said for uh, a president that comes out and say, hey, Germany, this Nord Stream 2, why are we watching your back if you want to get into bed with Russia on energy and him calling them out on that? Do you think there was something to be said for somebody that was trying to lead, even if it upset people? Yeah, well, I had a lot of problems with the, the way that President Trump uh, treated allies. I think a lot of the bullying was uh, was counterproductive. Uh, it was probably President Putin invading Ukraine, which had the biggest effect on Allied defense spending. Uh, but yes, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was uh, uh, exactly what you said. Uh, you know, how can we invest so much of U.S. taxpayers' money in NATO when uh, Germany is uh, building another pipeline, which will make Europe more dependent? on Russian gas and uh, potentially undercut Ukraine's security as well by depriving them of, uh, of, of revenues from, uh, from gas transit. So uh, even if uh, Trump had, had his uh, doubtful tactics uh, on that, that particular issue, he was right. And Biden has to send a clearer signal on that issue. They, you let him complete it. It's a terrible signal. Well, it was 95 percent done even it was, uh, yeah, it was with stopped. all the sanctions that were imposed yeah. by Congress over the last few years. But we now have to focus on making sure it doesn't become operational unless we get some clear guarantees from the Russians that Ukraine will not be the big loser and that they're not going to manipulate gas supplies uh, for political reasons. Those, gotcha. those easier said than done. Hey, thanks so much, Ambassador. Your wealth of knowledge is truly appreciated. Yeah, 
My pleasure. Ambassador Alexander Vershbo. Uh, listen, when we come back to your calls, 1-866-408-7669. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Challenging conventional thought and wisdom. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Tucker Carlson is up next, starting at 7. In a matter of three seconds, you will hear kettle drums. Two, one. Now I have six seconds to get you ready for Tucker Carlson. In a matter of three seconds, you're going to hear the kettle drums, and you're going to really... When we know Tucker's ready, it's when the snare drum starts. Yes. So let's wait it out. Greg, thank you. Yes. You're very nice. Is this the happy chatter you do? Yeah, I got an email saying they're not kettle drums. You see these emails? Uh, we've seen these emails. Yeah, it is not kettle drums. It's snare drums. Very so good. I never acknowledged that I was wrong. I did a Fauci. You did. I just changed, <laughs> you just changed right? it. But I we just, noticed. You noticed. Why do you notice stuff like that? That's what we're paid to do. Really? Yes. Eric gets paid? <laughs> Believe it or not, <laughs> yes. He gets paid. He told me, students for experience, that he works at a fast food place at night. Eric, are you not telling me the truth? What am I supposed to believe? Burger King, actually. Burger King, my bad, my bad. If I cared more about what you do after work, it certainly would have helped. A quick thing. Between Matthew McConaughey and uh, Dwayne Johnson, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who is more likely to run for office? Both have talked seriously multiple places about running. Rock talked about running for president. Matthew McConaughey has gone radio silent because he's legitimately thinking about running for governor. I think he is, too. He randomly does a podcast. I'll randomly see a post to promote a podcast for his book still. Um, but I think you're right. I think he's considering it more. Also, whenever a celebrity says president, all right, slow your roll. But like when he's looking at the more local level, it seems more legitimate. Right. I mean, the it's only guy besides job. Tim Tebow who decides just to jump into professional baseball without <laughs> playing and jump back into football as a tight end without playing. Besides that, usually there's usually a ramp up. You know, I'll try politics. I'll go on the board of education. Then I'll try to be president. Unless you're Donald Trump. Exactly. Right. That, that Trump ruined it for anybody who says, I need a learning curve. Kinda. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Zachary Garabell will be with us. He's an economist, historian, and author of Inside Money, Brown Brothers, Harriman, and the American Way of Power. He looks back at our history. Uh, also, Senator Cynthia uh, uh, Lummis will be with us, uh, talking about H.R. 1, talking about this I thought bipartisan, bicameral, possible proposal that Joe Biden might sign on infrastructure. Might help the country, right, to go across party lines on this. But there's a, there's a hitch, and we'll bring you the latest there. So let's get to the big three. 
Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. It reads to me like they are agreeing to split what we all call infrastructure from what the squad calls infrastructure. So we're going to split the two bills. But if they require Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin and all the other moderate Democrats to vote for both bills, then what have Republicans gained? I mean, you still get the whole bill. Uh, that is so true. Moving. That's what seems to be happening on the massive voting H.R. 1 and infrastructure bills as the most powerful Joe in Washington, Joe Manchin, is starting to release his demands to fellow Dems. Hold on tight. This could get crazy. Number two. Today, we are announcing that Texas will build a border wall in our state to help secure our border. I told you that Texas would step up and respond. Today... We begin that response. Uh, obviously, that's Governor Greg Abbott taking it into his own hands. States citing a common cause, securing the border and their safety and security and stopping drugs, com- uh, combining efforts to build a wall, sending their own National Guard to the border as calls for help in Arizona and Texas are answered by governors, not the vice president. Number one. I told President Putin my agenda is not against Russia. It's for the American people. Fighting COVID-19 rebuilding our economy, reestablishing relationships around the world, our allies and friends, and protecting the American people. That's my responsibility as president. You just gave away too much too early. That is a fact. Uh, Let's talk about that. What was said, what was promised, and what was accomplished at that summit over the last few days, and why I'm the rubber and your glued defense might just work for now for the Russians as a fawning American press gives old Joe a complete pass despite a befuddling blow-up at the end. I haven't really played this yet, but here's... So Joe Biden has his uh, two-, three-hour meeting with Vladimir Putin. It ends a lot earlier than we thought. It started earlier in the day, and he only takes four or five scripted questions throughout the entire G7 NATO summit visit with the queen, doesn't really take any questions. So frustrating to the press corps who goes thousands of miles away from their family and they're just doing stand-ups in front of European fixtures in iconic backgrounds. They can't get any sound unless you got a kind question asked the president and or you're with from a network. So after sitting up there, I think 40 minutes, 30 minutes, Really hot, it seems. He took his jacket off, took his glasses off. How do I know that? Sunglasses off? Because he put it on the ground. And then at the end, with the microphone still there, he puts his jacket on. Or excuse me, he yeah, he puts it on. And then puts his glasses on and just stands there. Then takes his glasses off, answers a question. Then takes a Fox question, walks off. And then in the background comes Caitlin Collins, who used to work at Fox. And she screams a question to him. And listen to his answer. Why are you so confident he'll change his behavior, Mr. President? Yeah, I'm not confident he'll change his behavior. What the hell? What do you do all the time? So when did I say I was confident? You I said, said in the next six I months said, what I said was, let's get it straight. I said, what will change their behavior is that the rest of the world reacts to them and it diminishes their standing in the world. I'm not confident of anything. Just stating the fact. But given his past behavior has not changed, and in that press conference after sitting down with you for several hours, he denied any involvement in cyber attacks, he downplayed human rights abuses, he even refused to say Alexei Navalny's name. So how does that account to a constructive meeting as President President Putin? You don't understand that, you're in your own business. No, he's not. That was two fantastic questions. Fantastic questions. And that's your angry answer. 
And what people have brought up, and I, I, you know, I'm not for what would happen with Donald Trump, but this is a perfect example. Donald Trump was in your face. All these people, every one of those questions was like Caitlin Collins that she had to shout on the sidelines. And the president, for you know, he get angry sometimes, but for the most part, he took him. He would sit in that room with during the worst of the pandemic and let people ask four or five questions. Here's one shouted from the sidelines, and he walks back and calls her out. All right. You know, you got to be adults. If you ever covered sports, athletes are yelling at you all the time. They don't like to hear anything negative. You strike out with the bases loaded. You go up to the guy and you say, you know, what were you thinking? What, what kind of pitch you were looking for? Well, they just snap at you. You know, it, you just get used to it. I'm not used to Joe Biden acting like that because he's never in, very rarely in, unscripted situations. Remember some of the times he did blow up. Remember when he was, uh, he, uh, he was on a satellite interview and he said, uh, are you a junkie? When people were asking about his son, I guess. And there were so many times where, you know, if you don't, uh, you know, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Obviously off the script and he showed some anger. He did apologize later. But listen, he did apologize. Here it is. I'll let you hear it. Cut nine. I owe my last question an apology. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have been such a wise guy with the last answer I gave. Anyway, thanks for being here. But then he was asked a couple of questions on the tarmac. Cut 10. And I guess the question that she was trying to get, and maybe you could tr- take another stab at it, is what concrete evidence do you have from these three or hour, three plus hours that, that suggests that any movement has been made? And I don't know. I don't. I don't mean no, that. No, to no, be a, no, not, no, not, no. Not, no but you're, you're all question, look. Right? To be a good reporter, you got to be negative. You got to have a negative view of life. Okay, it seems to me the way you all you never ask a positive question. The thing that always amazed me about the questions, and I apologize for having been sure it does. If you were in my position, would you say, well, I don't think, man, anything's going to happen. It's going to be really rough. I think it's going to really be bad. You guarantee nothing happens. You guarantee nothing happens. So what you're trying to say is, I always notice one thing in life. When someone says they're an optimist before they give you a statement, it means what I'm saying is not rooted in fact. I'm an optimist. Before I go ahead and tell you what I think and what I hope for, I'm an optimist. So I will be detached from reality. I'm hoping for the best. So if Joe Biden was being totally candid, he said, after this meeting, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm hoping for the best. That would be an answer instead of, if you don't understand the answer to that question, you're in the wrong business. We all lose our tempers. But it's pretty amazing. This is why they keep Joe Biden so buttoned up. And Jeff Zeleny said that. He's the one who asked that question famously to Barack Obama, what enchants you most about the business? Here's what he said about what he's seen so far with the 78-year-old former senator and vice president, turned president, cut 18. What we've not seen him do is answer questions uh, like that without his aides screaming at him to stop. I have never seen a president covering the last four of them who is so protected by his aides in terms of uh, often not wanting him to answer some questions. Isn't that pretty amazing? I mean, that's Jeff Zeleny who wants him to do well. I mean, the... There's a lot of problems with this summit. Number one, you went in with having already give up the Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline, allowing the Russians to make a ton of money, giving Western Europe, our allies, NATO allies, most of them members, the free uh, discounted oil and gas, which gives them control over their energy. Unbelievable. Without a strong message, despite what Ian Bremmer said, who's as great as anybody I've talked to on the world stage, I thought it was a weak message with China. We could not get Germany to go along with strong verbiage because they're too concerned about their Volkswagens and BMWs, and they're they're not there to do uh, to, to protect themselves. That's what they were there for. 
And then when you go and sit down with Vladimir Putin and basically take his word for it that they didn't, not just saying agrees, they didn't hack our elections, they didn't hack our pipeline, they didn't have anything to do with hacking our meat industry. They said those were people maybe in their country, maybe not. They said we're the biggest offenders. And they got away with that on the stage. At the very least, there's some legitimate questions about the conduct of this summit and what was actually accomplished. I agree with Joe Biden on one thing. We will not know how effective this has been for weeks or even in the next few months. But if they go into the Ukraine, if they continue to rattle the cages in Belarus, if uh, Vladimir, uh, uh, if Sergei, if uh, uh, Alexei Navalny dies, then you know they didn't hear anything. If we don't get our two guys back, you'll know it was a it was a loss. When we come back, Zachary Carabell joins us, an economist, historian, and author of this book, Inside Money: Brown Brothers, Harriman, and the American Way of Power. Don't move. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. Radio that makes you think. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. We're not going to make America great again. It was never that great. When I hear these things about let's make America great again, I think to myself, well, exactly when did you think America um, was great? There's things that are savagely wrong in this country. Injustice has grown to be normal in our country, and it's time for us to work together to get folk woke. Unbelievable, right? Uh, just some of the politicians who have gone out of their way to, uh, to put down America uh, because our past isn't perfect. Zach- uh, Zachary Carabell is out with a brand new book. He's an economist, historian, and author of this book, Inside Money, Brown Brothers, Harriman, and the American Way of Power. Zachary, welcome. Thank you for having me. Zachary, when you look back at our past, how do you believe, looking at uh, the brothers Har- the Brown Brothers uh, Harriman, uh, really symbol- symbolize where America was and is going to? Right. So let me give you, you know, the 10-second the summary of the book. Not only is Brown Brothers Harriman the progenitor of the Bush family dynasties where Prescott and Bush, the patriarch, made his money, but they really helped create capitalism as we know it, and they've been somewhat overlooked over the past 20 years, let alone the 220 years they've been in business. And you know, my central point in this book is money made America in the 19th century. A lot of the men, and they were all men and they were all white men who made the money of the 19th century, uh, made the global system of the 20th. The UN, the World Trade Organization, the Pentagon, the National Security Council, you know, and love that or hate that, that is the reality of who we are. And a lot of my point in this book is human beings are messy and complicated. And the craving for like purity in the past and purity in the present, I think, does us absolutely no good in figuring out who we are, who we've been and and where we're going. And I think this book and the story of this family over generation after generation after generation is a way of grappling with all of those things and all this kind of wonderful, messy complexity. So, you know, what's interesting is I don't remember a social studies class that I took of significance past maybe third grade that didn't talk about uh, slavery, didn't talk about uh, the 1960s race riots. I didn't see, even though I was born in the Northeast, I didn't see pictures of uh, blacks only water fountains and uh, and bathrooms and back of the bus and Rosa Parks. 
We talked about Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and Harriet Tubman the way we talked about Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. So I never thought there needed to be more of a balance in social studies. I saw the greatness, but I saw the struggle to be better and better. Did you see it differently? I think, you know, we're of a generation, and I think we're probably around the same era, give or take, where exactly those things became part of a curriculum, part of our collective understanding. But I think if you'd gone to school in the 1950s, which was a much more triumphalist moment in a very particular way, right? And a lot of that was framed by the Cold War, and a lot of that was framed by the urgency of feeling like they had this existential threat of Soviet communism, kind of amusing today to talk about Russia today, which is really a pale, pale version of what the Soviet Union was in the 1950s. So I do think these things oscillate over time, and there's been times of real imbalance, and there have been times of more balance. And You know, like one of the things in Brown Brothers that's fascinating is here's a firm that made a lot of its money in the 1830s and 1840s underwriting the cotton trade, which was a slave system, right? There's no, there's no ands, ifs, or buts by that. And they hated slavery, just in many ways like Thomas Jefferson, right? The complexity of people caught in morally problematic systems. And I think my only plea is that our desire for purity, and that purity goes both ways, right? One, one moment it's like we're not going to look at any of the wards of you know, white history, and the next moment it's we're not going to look at any of the wards of another history. Um, we could all do a little bit better by taking a deep breath and, and just going, look, we are, we are indeed that melting pot, which means there's a lot of stuff that's gone into that pot that we need to look at. Just a, a news question. Do you feel there's such an uh, inordinate push to separate Hispanics, blacks, men, women, that I think there's almost somebody else's agenda. Instead of trying to examine American history, it's like there's an agenda of let's let's make sure Americans know how separate they are. Yeah, and I think part of the problem with that, right, is once you go down that path, literally at no school and no book is there time to do every single micro aspect of our identity equal justice. <laughs> literally, right? I mean, if, if every single thing had to be paid attention to equally, we, we would spend – 30 years of our lives just trying to figure out who we are. Every society has to come up with some sort of compromise narrative that by very definition, like any book I write, any news show you do, you're leaving stuff out. Not because you're like leaving it out prejudicially. You're leaving it out partly because you've got an hour long radio show, yeah. right? You can't cover everything. You've got to, sh- you've got to choose what you cover. And weirdly enough, I think we completely forget that in this whole discussion, right? S- Choices S- have to be made. Somebody's not going to be happy. I could have been bumped today. I could be on for another 20 minutes. Someone else won't be. I mean, that's just the reality of life. And we, I think we act like when we look at history and we look at our past as if sort of every story has to be told every time. And that's just not possible. And, and so, Zachary, so you study uh, th- this family and you bring us through uh, all the different things, all the different challenges America had through race riots from World War II, World War I. I get it. I think that's a great vehicle to do it. When you study uh, America's past, do you like this country more or less? I like the fact that the United States has always been a place where at every given moment, every generation has a choice about who we're going to be. And that it is not a country that is beholden to a past in the way that other traditional societies have been. So we have a choice right now about who we're going to be right now and who we're going to be in the future. And part of my point about Brown Brothers, which is a slightly different one, is we have a choice about what version of capitalism we are going to embrace. There are versions of capitalism that accept that there is a public good that always has to be in the context of private gain. 
and the private gain always has to be in the context of public good. And Brown Brothers, you know, a Wall Street firm of WASP establishment for hundreds of years embodied that ethos. And they were totally capitalist, right? There's nothing uncapitalist about it. And so, I, you know, I really believe, as I've written a lot about American history over the past years, that that reality of this society, that we have a choice as to what version of ourselves we're going to be and what systems we are going to embrace mm-hmm. and how we're going to embrace them, is incredibly potent and powerful. As you look around the world, is it fair to look at America and say you're messing with a first-place team? You're trying to make the roster perfect by looking at its past, I guess, technically, uh, and how to make it better? But do you th- I think we lost that ability to understand how good we have it, even on our worst day. Am I wrong? I, I think that's totally right. The way I would disagree is I don't think it actually matters you know, where we rank in the panoply of nations. I think it matters about what society we are creating for ourselves. And that the comparisons of like, I find that a little bit puerile and, 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 and immature to feel like we have to figure out, are we well, number one? Are we number I think, two? It's, are we I, think I would, I would ch- qualify that by saying I'm just being practical. You want a society to be better, yes. But by the way, what, are we, what standard are we living up to? A standard that no society has ever gained. We're trying to take That's a bunch true, of different I, backgrounds and uh, everyone with, totally. with different ethnic backgrounds, and we're just trying to be better. But I think at one point, take a deep breath, look around, and go, well, I'm pretty happy to be in this debate, as opposed to where do yeah. I eat tomorrow and where do I get shelter? But we should still focus on how do we be the best that we can be. Pick up, yeah, pick up Zachary's book. It's interesting. Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman, and the American Way of Power. Zachary, thanks so much. Back in a moment. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. And the American people want us to invest in the future. Mm -hmm. They don't want us to just be filling the last generation's potholes. They want high-speed broadband. They want high-speed rail. We should be able to get to New York in an hour and a half. You should be able to get from New York City to Albany 152 miles in 36 minutes. But aren't you guys right now pushing something that Republicans totally would agree with? I mean, this is infrastructure. You overestimate. Are there sticking points with this? I think so. I think so. Because here's the deal. Fossil fuel industry opposes electrified high-speed rail. There's a Uh lot of special interests that do not want to see mass transit. And this is one of the big reasons why... You know, we had the technology for EVs about 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. We had technologies for electrified rail over the last 100 years. And one of the big reasons why that didn't happen was because Congress was swayed and lobbied the first time by fossil fuel industries, by car industries. Well, that, if that's a, if those lobbyists that keeping uh, rail from being rebuilt, tunnels from being redone, I believe uh, trains are electric. But who, uh, I am not an expert on transportation, and I don't think Seth Moulton and AOC are, but they're talking about the infrastructure bill, which might be moving forward without the so-called human infrastructure, which is farcical, that says we should be paying for after-school lunches, uh, the preschool for everybody, junior college for everybody, elder care. There are issues that should be debated separately. Senator Cynthia uh, Lummis joins us now. Uh, she, uh, among other things, will be front and center as we try to find out if there's going to be bipartisan agreement on H.R. 1, I hope not, and on some type of infrastructure compromise. Senator, welcome back. 
Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. So, so what do you think about that little debate uh, about lobbyists keeping you guys from high-speed trains? I never heard that before. That is fiction. Uh, that is uh, people trying to divert attention from what is, in fact, happening in Congress needs to happen in Congress. Uh, I don't see objections to high-speed rail as long as it can be permitted and the money spent uh, in a reasonable manner. They've been waiting in California for over 12 years, and now they've got a project that's many, many billion dollars uh, in uh, the red, and they still don't have it done. So it is not the oil and gas industry that is trying to prevent people from having high-speed rail. It is ridiculous permitting. It is outrageous costs. And those have been driven by the party of the woman who made that argument. Uh, that is the Democratic Party, who's way to the left. There's almost two Democratic parties. There's a Democratic Party, which is liberal, and there's one that is way left that they have to rein in because their majority is so small in the House and non-existent in the Senate, despite the vice president being there. But when you talk about stuff that's going to get done, uh, were you part of the group that put together a bipartisan, bipartisan bicameral proposal for infrastructure that, that estimates around $927 billion? I was not part of the group, but I am on all three committees of jurisdiction. And what we did is put out unanimous bipartisan bills to deal with sewer, water, and highways. And we're working now on bills to complete uh, the traditional infrastructure spending. Um, the group that began to work immediately after uh, President Biden and Shelley Moore Capito discontinued their conversation, has put together something that is intriguing to uh, even uh, those of us who are very fiscally conservative on the right side of the aisle. It is very interesting to centrists, but the fascinating thing, Brian, is it seems to see the most objections from the far left of the Democrat caucus. Um, the Part of the reason that is true is that these centrists that are putting this plan together really are focused on legitimate infrastructure. They're not using this expansive term uh, to define things as infrastructure that are not infrastructure at all. And of course, the far left of the Democrat party wants things like uh, state and federal sponsored uh, programs related to uh, children. It's kind of cradle to grave care for people. And, uh, and even uh, the centrists in the Democrat Party are not buying that. Well, so far, I mean, I could give you the whole list, $5 billion for Western water storage, uh, $16 billion for about, uh, capping abandoned wells, which helps the Green Parties, $5 billion for Superfund cleanup, $25 billion for airports. And it, it adds up to $575 billion, but then you repurpose some of the pandemic money, which you don't need anymore, and you get just about a trillion dollars. It intrigued a lot on the left, including Joe Manchin. But yet, yesterday, I understand Senator Schumer is making moves to pass it on pure party line vote. What do I believe? If I'm on the outside looking to see if my state, like your state of Wyoming, is going to get some money and we're going to get some rebuild going and some jobs, 
Where do I where do I look at Schumer or Mansion? Well, exactly. Uh, Mansion uh, is, I think, taking a very reasonable approach along with some uh, centrist Republicans and garnering more and more support from the middle of the U.S. Senate. Uh, so, uh, looking at Schumer, who's now trying to. I think, corral uh, the broad spectrum within his party, everything from the centrists like uh, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. Um, and then he's also trying to garner his far left, like Elizabeth Warren uh, and Bernie Sanders. And right now, he's really struggling to keep his caucus together. Uh, I think that the fact that he's struggling, Brian, uh, bodes well uh, for trying to come up with a bipartisan solution. So I'm delighted to see these talks continuing. I'm pleased uh, that the uh, centrists in both parties continue to communicate, negotiate, and try to come up with a bipartisan solution. It is so much better than using that awkward reconciliation process to come up with a Democrats-only plan that is just a big, bloated spending mess that may include additional taxes. So I want you to hear what Trey Gowdy said. He think he's afraid there's going to be two bills. Cut 38. It reads to me like they are agreeing to split what we all call infrastructure from what the squad calls infrastructure. The prior criticism was that the word infrastructure was being used to, to cover lots of other things. So we're going to split the two bills. But if they require Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin and all the other moderate Democrats to vote for both bills, then what have Republicans gained? I mean, you still get the whole bill. You just get it on two separate days instead of the same day. So I'm not real sure. Uh, what Republicans gain from this, but infrastructure is always popular. It's usually bipartisan, but it's usually defined as roads and bridges and airports and not daycare. So they're thinking that to get Manchin, uh, he'll sign on to prior infrastructure and no tax increases, but they'll, uh, but in in turn, they'll get Manchin to sign on to the social or so-called human infrastructure. That's what they're trying to do. Uh, so far, Joe Manchin has said he won't agree to that, uh, but he's under tremendous pressure. I know. Uh, and so uh, I am. I think that if we can come up with a, a pure infrastructure bill that is bipartisan um, and uh, agree to it and get it passed, uh, then that would be superior and allow the Republicans to just fight like the Dickens uh, against a reconciliation package that is just a big, bloated, non-infrastructure spending bill. So they're talking about a modified filibuster reduction, so you don't need all 60 votes. And they're desperately trying to twist the arm of Joe Manchin, even though he, Kristen Sinema feels the same way, and maybe Chester does over in Montana as well. So he was talking to donors, somebody was taping it. Tell me if this is concerning you. That's one of many good, uh, good suggestions I've had. I looked back in 19, I think it was 73 when it went from 67 votes to 60 votes. And also what was happening, what made them think that it needed to change. So I'm open to looking at it. I'm just not open to getting rid of the, of the filibuster. That's all. And uh, right now, 60 is where I'm planning my flag. Uh, but I'm, uh, as long as they know that I'm going to protect this filibuster, we're looking at good solutions. So less than 60 votes, maybe drop it to 55. Have you heard this? 
I have not heard this, uh, and I think that that would uh, be equivalent to just completely abrogating the filibuster. Um, so uh, this, I think, is uh, the kind of talk that is kicked around uh, outside of uh, the confines of uh, Senate members speaking to each other about these things. Uh, that's the kind of things that the press likes to speculate about and lead members into saying, yeah, I would consider that, um, when in fact uh, that would be deemed uh, as the equivalent of breaking the filibuster, uh, and it would create uh, tension and distrust within the Senate uh, that would spill over uh, into the years to come. So uh, if that indeed is, is uh, speculation that was uh, not born of the press, but actually was born of within the Democrat caucus in the Senate, uh, I would be very alarmed by that. Senator Cynthia Lummis is our guest right now, and we're talking about um, uh, we're talking about uh, what's going on right now in the country. We had the Supreme Court hand down a decision to uphold Obamacare. They didn't really hear the case. They just said Texas didn't have standing to bring the case. Bottom line is Obamacare stands. Are you surprised? I'm not surprised. I am disappointed, uh, of course, uh, when the Senate. I think we might. Uh, passed the repeal of Obamacare. Uh, I think it sealed its fate. Understood. A federal judge has blocked a couple of days ago the Biden administration's temporary ban on new leases to drill for oil and gas on public lands. What does that mean for the people of Wyoming in this country? So that means sales can that, continue, right? Absolutely. And that is a godsend for my state because half of our state, the state of Wyoming, is uh, owned by the government, but 90 percent of the minerals are owned by the government. So when uh, President Biden uh, used that executive order to shut down our ability to produce uh, oil, gas, coal, and other minerals on federal land, including rare earth minerals, uh, he did, it was just a death knell uh, to the future of our ability uh, to both uh, help the nation uh, meet its electric and oil and gas needs, uh, but also the wow. jobs and our ability to function as an economy. Will they take this up the ladder? My guess is they will. And uh, my attorney general in Wyoming, along with uh, my uh, dear friend Jeff Landry, the attorney general of Louisiana, who I must applaud uh, up one side and down the other for taking this case and, and taking it seriously and, and garnering the support of other attorneys general around the country. Um, I yeah. It, uh, because uh, that executive order uh, was completely unreasonable and unjustified, especially when you look at the Federal Land Policy Management Act of 1974. Uh, it, 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 in my opinion, violated the law. I believe Attorney General Jeff Landry believe it violated the law, and right. thankfully so did a federal judge in Louisiana. Lastly, H.R. 1. Uh, Joe Manchin outlined in a memo to other Democrats what it would take for him to vote for it. He is not for public financing of elections. He wants voter ID. He does not want no excuse absentee uh, voting. He will accept 15 day consecutive days of early voting as a standard for all 50 states. He also will say, I'll accept Election Day as a public holiday. I think uh, no one really cares that much about that. And then 
uh, House Majority Whip James Clyburn said, I like what I saw. I like what I read. H.R. 1 is a nightmare. It is not constitutional, but it still might be implemented. And who knows what happens when it comes to the Supreme Court nationalizing elections. Where do you stand on H.R. 1? They do need 60 votes. There's no money involved to rationalize reconciliation. Are you worried? Well, no. Quite frankly, we're just going to fight like the Dickens. Uh, And uh, I uh, am extremely opposed to the bill. I don't think it can be repaired, um, even with the more reasonable approach that Joe Manchin is taking. The bill is irreparable because it federalizes elections. Uh, And so we will continue to fight right now. House Republicans seem very united on that. Uh, And so I expect that they won't be able to get the 60 votes needed for cloture, uh, but uh, to ensure that they don't, um, Senate Republicans are taking to the floor uh, frequently, daily, to point out what a disastrous impact this would have on our nation's voting and elections and our ability to choose our leaders. Senator, how secure is Liz Cheney's seat in Wyoming? It, it remains to be seen. Um, she and has numerous opponents. Um, we have sort of a winner-take-all system. Uh, we don't have weighted voting. Uh, and uh, so with that many opponents, uh, if she uh, runs for re-election and faces that many opponents, they will dilute each other's votes, and, and she could be okay. Um, but, of course, the factor that uh, everyone uh, will anticipate seeing is whether President Trump uh, will pick a candidate and endorse that candidate and uh, throw the weight of uh, his team uh, behind that candidate. And that is a wild card that will play out in the months to come. Do you want her to stay? You know, uh, I, we work together for Wyoming day in and day out. Uh, and it is for the voters of Wyoming to make that decision. Thanks so much, Senator uh, Cynthia Lomas. Uh, always enjoy talking to you. Uh, good luck. Uh, roll up your sleeves and get busy. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Brian. All right, everybody, I'll be on tonight at 7 p.m. on primetime, so I'll join you then and be back in just a moment. Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everyone. I'm looking at the clock. I think it's time to see if I can actually know more. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-GOLD. All right, here we go. The post-pandemic shopping spree is happening. 45% of adults plan to spend more this summer than the last two combined. Good job. Over half want to revamp their wardrobe. Another two in five Americans can't wait to hit the town. 22% can't wait to go to a live sporting event. 21% are itching to attend a concert. Uh, Nearly nine in ten singles plan to make the most of the dating scene by going out to more restaurants this summer. Have you seen this already where you are in Jersey? I will say, yeah, on average, they're saying people are going to go out four times a week trying to get um, restaurants. 
reservations at restaurants, especially down the shore, is impossible. I hear some places are booked up all summer. Already. All right, you got to pay off the maitre d. Next, <laughs> nearly 25% of coronavirus survivors sought care for new medical ailments. That's not good. Uh, a study excluded patient-specific pre-existing conditions. Results suggest 23% had at least one COVID condition 30 days after their first COVID diagnosis. I saw this thing on HBO. Athletes, great shape, still with the lingering illness. They can no longer run, compete, uh, especially the respiratory issue. Yeah, some of the things are uh, breathing difficulties, fatigue, hypertension. So That wouldn't be good. Hey, I have a lot more, but I just don't have time. I'll see you tonight at 7 o'clock. In our last block, is very similar to More to Know. So we'll get to do that with Anna Hornis, uh, uh, Abby Hornacek. So that'll be great. Uh, we also have Chris Christie coming on tonight at 7. So I'll see you back here. Brian Kilman Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.